2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us. Isn't that interesting? Pray for us. So Paul, the great apostle, writer of almost two-thirds of the New Testament, some would say, oh, he's a super Christian, but he said, pray for us, right? We can never get to the point that we don't need people to pray for us. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. That's an interesting statement, that it may run swiftly. So Paul here gives them a prayer request, and then he specifically tells them, what to pray for. Uh, there are two answers. He had a prayer request, two-part prayer request. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as, as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So, even in Paul's day, much closer to when Jesus was in his, doing his ministry, there was still a struggle uh, with people having enough faith, right? Uh, so that, that's important for us to see. So two-part answer. First is that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. What do you think Paul meant by the word running swiftly? Free course, spread quickly, okay? Uh, you know, you kind of get this um, picture of a, of a runner, you know, a sprinter or something, and that's what Paul wants uh, is for the word to be effective or to run swiftly. So that's important for us to see there. Pa Paul requests prayer, and that prayer is for the effectiveness of his ministry. He wanted his ministry to be effective. Without prayer, no ministry is effective, right? So if you want and feel like God's called you into a ministry, then start praying before you ever start working. Uh, that's very important. And ask other people to pray for you. Before you ever start doing, you should start praying. So we see Paul here requesting prayer uh, for the word of God to run freely that uh, they might not may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Still a common problem to have unreasonable and wicked men. Can I add women to that? Is that all right? Because it's really what it means, men and women. How many knows that that hasn't stopped in our day, right? that some people are just difficult to deal with and uh, unreasonable and wicked. And how many knows that wicked people don't want the word of God to spread, right? So that's important uh, that we see that. That it may run swiftly. How many knows that that's God's desire for his word to go out and for it to be effective? Uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11 this is God speaking about his own word. It shall not return to me void. It means it, it will 
produce something. It will have some fruit. It won't return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word promises that we are expected to, uh, you know, he expects for his word to accomplish something. Let's read verses 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful. Wow. You could just stop right there, couldn't you? You could preach a whole sermon. You could have all of us testify about how faithful God has been. The Lord is faithful. How many have found him to be faithful? Amen? Uh, he's, he's consistent. He's faithful. He is true to his word. His character does not change. He's the same. Help me fill this in. Yesterday, today, and forever. So he is faithful. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So here, Paul is saying because the Lord is faithful, there are some things that he will do for you. And that first thing is in that first uh, sentence. He will establish you. What does that make you think about? If somebody is established, they're, they're steadfast, they're what? What's the Built? So they're established, they're solid, secure, well built, right? God will establish you. So he establishes you in the faith. Uh, you learn and grow and you become closer to him. He establishes you, but what else does he do? God's faithful, so he establishes us, builds our foundation, helps us become what we need to be, but yet he's also guarding us from the enemy. Isn't that good, right? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just establish you and keep you, but he also protects you from the evil one, the enemy? Uh, we need both when it comes uh, to living a Christian life. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things that we command you. Paul had some confidence in the Thessalonians, the Christian church there. It's pretty good because he established that church very quickly. He wasn't able to be there for a long, long time, probably a matter of a few weeks. Uh, but he had some confidence in them because he had heard reports from them how well that they were doing, how they were staying true to the word of God, how they were uh, doing things. And he said, I have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you do and will do. What does that mean? You're doing it now, you'll keep doing it. You're doing it now, you'll keep doing it, right? You'll be faithful. You'll be consistent. See, there's something about the character of a Christian who's been established with the Lord is that we need to strive to be consistent. I didn't say we need to strive to be powerful and super anointed and all of those kinds of things. 
I think we can be, but the main thing that we need to be is consistent and faithful, right? Uh, it's the, the Bible says uh, that he says, well done, thou good and faithful steward, right? Faithful servant. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Ooh, we need the patience of Christ, don't we? Or maybe just I do. You guys are totally patient, right? <laughs> you love everybody every time, all the time, right? <laughs> we need to have some patience in Christ, don't we? And he builds that into us. Now we've got some responsibility to, to love people and be patient with them, uh, but it's the love of God. The Lord directs your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. If you love somebody, a whole lot easier to be patient with them, right? Think about it. Do you love your kids? Sure. A whole lot easier to be patient when you really love somebody, right? So it is the Lord, has, it says here, he's directing your hearts into love and into the patience of Christ. So in all these things, God is kind of growing us up. He's establishing us. You and I should not remain baby Christians, right? We need to be growing, maturing, uh, not having to have milk all the time, right? Now, that's kind of what this class is about. Many of you have been Christians for a long time, and so we dig a little deeper. We go a little further because we have a desire. You have a desire to mature in Christ, right? To grow in Him. Uh, and so it's important for us to do that. Because God doesn't just pour spiritual maturity and stability into you. You have to cooperate with him. I mean, would say that God's helped you grow up. God, God, God helps us grow up. Uh, he establishes us. He uh, grows. He grows us when we co cooperate with him. Let's look at verse six. Now, notice that Paul is an apostle, founded this church. So this first uh, phrase is pretty strong. But we command you, brethren, not we hope you do it, not we wish you would do it, but we command you. Now, this is Paul, uh, called by a God to be an apostle, to raise up churches, to put leaders and pastors into place. So his wording is pretty strong. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Let's stop right there for a second. He's saying you don't need to hang out with people who aren't living in an orderly manner before God. 
Does that mean you never talk to them, you never see them? How would you ever win anybody to the Lord, right? But the question is, have we spent so much, would we spend so much time and could we spend so much time with someone who walks disorderly that that rubs off on us? Are we influencing and affecting people for good or are they doing the opposite to us? So he says here, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Talked about this a little bit last week. He's not talking about traditions like we come in and we always do three songs. That's not the traditions that he's talking about. He's not, he's not talking about the tradition that we kind of have now that we sing one fast song and a couple slow ones. Talking about that. He's not saying uh, that we always take the offering after the first song. He's not talking about those traditions. He's talking about the apostles' teachings and traditions, right? Those biblical things uh, that they received from the Lord, and uh, tradition isn't always bad, right? So Paul's saying, He's commanding them uh, to uh, do this, to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. What does that look like? How do you withdraw from a brother or sister that walks disorderly, but continue to be a witness? What does that look like? make you think just a little bit. How do we walk that out? If we're to avoid and be away from these people uh, who walk disorderly but yet have an influence on them, then we're to be a witness and sometimes use words, but most of the time not. You know what I'm saying? That means we live it. We walk it out. I used to know a guy who would had a tendency to walk downtown and just kind of get him a real central spot. And he would literally just point people out and say, you're going to die and go to hell. How effective was that? I never did see him when anybody to the Lord. I never did see him have any influence over anybody coming to the church. I never did see any of that. Now, if God calls you to do that, you know, you got to be obedient to the Lord. But what about just living it and walking it out and treating people like God would treat them, right? You know, think about that. How do we, how do we walk that out? Uh, don't just withdraw from somebody because... They don't act like you. That's not what it says. Don't just withdraw from somebody uh, because they don't stand up to your standards. But continue to be an influence and have an effect on them. So, I want to point out something here. And it's just one word, but it makes a big difference in this whole text that we're looking at. It says 
Withdraw from every brother who, what's that next word? Who walks. Who walks. That is present tense. Not past tense. So what is it saying? It is talking about a person who continues to walk disorderly. Not an occasional lap, lapse in judgment or in how they live, but a persistent practice. If we were to avoid everybody who messed up every once in a while, we'd be pretty lonely, wouldn't we? People would be avoiding us, true, right? So this is saying to avoid or not be continually with somebody who continues to walk away from God, continues to walk disorderly before God, not just an occasional slip or mess up, but somebody who is consistently living that way. You know, does that make sense, right? Withdrawal from them. Now, there is a purpose. He's talking to the church, not just us individually. You can apply this individually, but he's also talking to the church. If we were to avoid someone who's consistently living against the order of God, and remember, this is written to the church, and it's possible that that person actually attends church, but continues to live inconsistently to the order of God. I mean, let's get real. Not everybody who comes to church is a Christian, right? Not everybody who comes to church lives like they ought to. So if Paul is saying here, trying to get to a point, to withdraw from those who are disobedient, there's a purpose behind the church doing that. And it's a word that we don't hardly ever use. But it's kind of, have you ever heard the term excommunication? That's what Paul is saying to do. Not to just a person that messes up occasionally. But that person, especially if they're in the church and persistently living disorderly and causing disruption, he says, you've got to gotta set them to the side. You've got to. Some denominations or religions do shun, but maybe not go that far. But And there's a purpose behind that. They obviously, if they're still living in sin and still being disobedient and disorderly, but they like to come to church and they want to come to church, then they're enjoying something about church, probably the fellowship, right? If they enjoy that, Paul's saying, cut them off with the purpose that they'll see their mistakes, their sins, and want to come back and repent and be then received back into the church, right? It's interesting here what he's uh, talking about. And it is the responsibility of the church to do this, not just the pastor, right? 
That's important that we see that. Verses 7 through 9. So now Paul said, if they don't line up, then this is how you deal with them. Now he's going to describe what it looks like to live an orderly life. Because you need to know the difference, right? Verses 7 through 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. He said, hey, I've already talked to you. You know how you're supposed to live, and now you're supposed to follow us. It's not a mystery to you, right? That's what he's saying. So you know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul, as an apostle, has the right and the authority to say, to teach them and to say, you need to line up with us, right? Not just his word, but his word was received from the Lord and he gave it to them. That's why they're supposed to obey it. If your leader gets away from scripture, then you need to be careful. If it don't line up with the scripture, then you need to be careful if you're following after that. Right? I don't expect you to do something that's not biblical just because I told you to, say, to do it. That'd be wrong. Paul's not saying this that he's building himself up. He's saying, God gave me this. Now I'm passing it on to you. So you know how you ought to act, how you ought to follow us. Uh, and then he said, and even if you didn't, I'm just, I'm paraphrasing. Even if you didn't really hear and understand what we said, we lived it out before you. We made ourselves an example. I don't know about you, but that's the way I learn. I can read something, but if I see it in action, I'm going to remember it a lot more. What about you, right? I don't do this all the time, but Sunday we talked about Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I've set before you an open door. I didn't count, but it looked like pretty much everybody took a step of faith and said, I know this is just an illustration, but I'm going to walk through the door. I'm going to, I'm telling the Lord in 2024 that I'm going to walk through the door that he has set before me. So that was a, a good uh, act of obedience and faith, right? Paul said, we set the example before you. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That part is quoted a whole lot of times. It's very true. Uh, but it is said a lot. Notice how it's worded. It doesn't say if anyone cannot work. It says if anyone 
will not work. There's a difference, right? Because if you cannot work, then I believe as a church, if you're especially connected to a church, that there is a responsibility to help take care of people to a degree who cannot work. But that's not what this is saying. You know, sometimes this gets misquoted, misunderstood. It's not, he's not trying to be harsh and saying, don't, don't feed anybody. What he's saying is, if there is an attitude, a rebellious attitude that says, I'm not going to work and all the rest of y'all got to take care of it. And Paul says, no, that's not right. He's not condoning that. He's saying, if you will not work, then you shall not eat. Uh, that's an interesting thing. So, what does that say God's attitude is about work? So God thinks work is good. God thinks work is valuable. God thinks work is uh, something that will help us. I don't know about you, but if I didn't have any kind of work to do, nothing to accomplish, no reason to get up, I wouldn't have an orderly life. Even when you're retired, you can still have a purpose. Thank you, Lord. And you can still have a calling that God has given to you, right? Uh, I have people walk up to me all the time that knew me at Sylvania, and they said, how is it to be retired? I said, I'll take it when I get there, right? Because I just went from one full-time employment to another right? Uh, and I was already doing that for a couple years or more before that, right? Work is good. Jesus told people, I work. The Father works and I work. In other words, he's following the example of the Father and then we're to follow the example of the Son. Work is not bad. Work is not evil. Work has great benefits and makes you feel that you have a purpose. Uh, here God has a, an attitude about work that he thinks it's good. I think work causes us to develop character in our lives. Discipline in our lives. For 27 years, I did not like having to be at work on time. But I was rarely late and hardly ever missed, except for vacations. So that helps us to develop character, dependability, all those things. Many of you are retired, but that doesn't mean you don't have a job to do, especially in the kingdom of God. Do we take that responsibility uh, and understand that we're to harvest. Jesus said the harvest is already ready, right? It's white. Don't say we've got another few months. He said now is the time of the harvest, right? So we're to work.
different in the kingdom. The work looks different, but it's still work. Verses 11 through 13. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all. Wow. Look at what happens when you don't work at all. But our busybodies. Busybodies. Busy bodies of doing nothing. Right? Busybodies. What does that mean? What does that make you think of? When I, if I was to say X person is a busybody, what does that mean? Gossiper, yeah, because sometimes uh, they don't have enough going on in their life, so they're looking at everybody else's life and they're like, I'm just going to talk about them because I ain't got nothing to do. And they got the nose in everybody else's business. They're busybodies. Busy at doing nothing but creating issues and problems. Telling you what you need to do instead of what they should be doing, right? Now those who are such, so he's talking to those busybodies, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Work in quietness. In other words, go to work, do the work, don't make a scene, don't have to be coddled and begged to do your work. Do it in quietness, he said. And then, when you're working, eat your own bread. You have bread because you have worked. So don't be looking for everybody else's bread, right? Eat your own. Be content with what God has given to you. We're all blessed, amen? Uh, so be content, that's what he said. But as for you, so all of that was to the busybody. Now this is to the church who, as a whole, who are not busybodies. And he says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. It was important to deal with, for me, with people who didn't want to work, didn't want to do their job, and they wanted everybody else to, deal, to do it. Because that would, have you ever heard the saying, it just takes one rotten apple in the bunch? So here Paul is saying, don't grow weary of doing good. Because many times if we watch people, and we can, if we don't watch out, get this kind of attitude, but they don't have to do nothing. Then I don't have to do nothing. Right? But Paul is saying to them, the church, don't get tired of doing good. Don't get weary in that. Keep doing what God's called you to do. Keep blessing people and helping people and witnessing to people. Keep doing all those things. Don't get tired of doing that. In other words, don't pay attention to what the busybody's doing. Because if you're paying attention to what the busybody's doing, guess what that's going to make you into? Another busybody, right? So don't pay attention to them. 
Just keep doing good. Okay? Anybody here ever managed a group of people? And what, I, and what I'm saying, is that right? If you don't deal with that kind of attitude, it goes right into the rest of the group. So that's what Paul uh, is kind of saying, but in a spirit with a spiritual application. So Paul has shown the Thessalonians by example and by word how they should live. Now he's saying, how do you deal with those who are disobedient to this apostolic word? Verse 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. Point them out. Note them. Don't keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, here is further instruction on how to deal with a person who's disobedient to God's word. The church. How does the church deal with that? It says, note that person. What does that mean? Note them. Point them out. Put it in your memory bank. Yeah. Note that person. See, you don't get much teaching on this kind of stuff. I'm just being, I'm just being truthful. Because if we don't watch it, we have a habit of cherry-picking the Word of God. And I like what this says, so I'm going to teach this. And I'm going to forget this kind of stuff. Because this seems a little bit harsh to uh, a world that says, Oh, we don't just... Let everybody, it, it don't matter if they work or not, we're just going to let them, we're going to give them money to eat too. We're going to, we're not going to, uh, you know, make people be, as a church, obedient to the word of God, and hold them accountable. Uh, so it's, that's why it's important that when we, number one, that you read scripture, the whole of scripture. And then that we, as leaders and as children of God and students of the word that we teach the whole word right not just the parts we like that's easy to do sometimes I get that privilege on Sunday morning to just preach real hard a word that I like but I can't leave out things that are more difficult uh, and harder to understand and harder to apply don't count them as an enemy but admonish him as a brother much. What does that mean? Tell them they're wrong. Harshly? Loving. Loving correction. Right? Admonish. If you really love someone, you can admonish them. So there's a level of patience, kindness, love that goes into this. Uh, it's not Browbeating, and it's not slapping people upside the head like we like to do sometimes. But it is admonishing them. The thought about admonishment means that I'm doing this not because I don't like you and you're making me mad. 
the thought of admonishment is that I'm telling you this for your own good. So that's, that's important. Treat them like a brother, like a sister. Let them know you don't want them to go astray. I want you to be a part of us. I want you to reap the blessings of God. I want you to, uh, you know, uh, have a, a, a full, free fellowship with the saints. But if you live like this and follow this way, you, you, won't, you can't, right? I want you to be a part of us. So here's the best way to live. Here's the, and it does come down to sometimes that you shouldn't do that. That's not right. Make sure that if you're admonishing someone that it's not just your thoughts and ideas and opinions. Make sure if you're admonishing someone that it is based on the word of God. So it's important. Verse 16 through 18. We're going to finish up here. Almost there. Conclusion to Paul's letter. But much like me, he writes lengthy conclusions. To have a lot of words. Now may the Lord of peace himself. The Lord is the Lord of peace. Right? He doesn't just bring peace, He is peace. Peace is a defining characteristic of God. The Lord, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Always in every way. I love that. Peace always. Do you struggle sometimes having peace? Do you struggle in some areas having peace? We do, don't we? I mean, I can face some things and I never lose my peace. But something different that I'm struggling with my peace, right? All the pieces, yeah. Uh, so here it's saying, where do we get our peace from? From the Lord. It comes from Him. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. We'll come back to that. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul is blessing them. He's saying, may the Lord of peace give you peace. He is writing this, the end of this epistle by hand. Why would he do that? Why would he do that when he has a penman and a, somebody who can write it for him? And they do. Personal touch. How many knows even Christmas cards, we get at Christmas. It means just a little bit more if it's not a stamp and it's handwritten. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's fine. I'm just saying it does have a personal touch, right? It has a personal touch. It has a demonstration of affection. But it goes beyond that. Why would Paul write this conclusion in his own handwriting? So that they knew it was authentic, right? And that he cared for it. So he said, 
it's, it's twofold. So it's a personal demonstration of affection, but also proof that the letter is authentic. And Paul did that, and he told, I mean, he even told us, I do this, this in all of my epistles. And then, of course, he ends with the grace of Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul always seemingly starts with grace and finishes with grace. Aren't you glad that the Lord starts with grace and finishes with grace? Amen? So according to verses 1 and 2, this is Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, according to verses 1 and 2, what two things do Paul request prayer for? Word runs swiftly to be glorified. That's one. So that they're delivered from unreasonable, wicked men and women, right? In other words, uh, that not only does the word do what it's supposed to do, but there's not hindrance from people. Question two, according to verse three, how does Paul describe the faithfulness of the Lord? Two phrases. He will. Establish you and deliver or guard you from the evil one. According to verse 4, what was Paul confident the Thessalonians would do? Do and will do the things they're commanded, right? So they're, they were already doing it, and they're going to be, like this word tonight, faithful and continuing to do it. Question four, according to verse six, what did Paul command the Thessalonians to do? According to verse six, to withdraw from those who walk disorderly and not according to the tradition. But, you know, they're walk, if they're not doing the tradition, the apostolic traditions, then they are walking disorderly. Question five, what does the present tense of walks mean or denote? That their persistent practice, actively engaging uh, in a disorderly lifestyle or conduct. Not just not that they used to walk or did walk, but they're currently still. Question six: What did Paul command them according to verse ten? You don't work. You will not work, then you shall not eat. Question seven, according to verse 12, what did Paul tell the busybodies to do? Work in quietness and eat your own bread. But I like be quiet and mind your own business. That's that's pretty pretty close to what he's saying. According to verse 13. What were the Thessalonian, when I say Thessalonians, I mean the church, the true Christians there, not to grow weary of doing? Doing good. According to verse 14, question number nine, that's on your second page. What were the Thessalonians to do with a person who was disobedient to this epistle? Note them and don't keep company with them. 
And then final question. Name two reasons uh, Paul might have written the final words of the epistle himself. Personal touch or demonstration of affection and then proof of its authenticity. 